Well, good morning, Hellas Church. It's great to be with you today. Let me invite you to grab your Bibles and turn them open to 1 Peter chapter 2. Find your way to the passage of Scripture that was read for us a moment ago as we continue our, our study of this little letter. Now, one of the goals for this series is to clarify our understanding, our self-understanding as the church. Who are we as the church? Who are we to be in the world as the church? You know, from the outside looking in, we appear to many as just a collection of strangers and exiles. Strangers and exiles who, who live differently, who, who seem a little odd, who may even seem a little off because we love people in self-giving, sacrificial ways. Because we pursue holiness in a way that, is, that harmonizes and reflects the holy character of our God. We embody the ethics of the kingdom of God. We conform our lives to the good news of God's word, and all of that causes us to live differently, to love differently, to serve differently. And, from the, and so from the outside looking in, we appear to be just a collection of, of strange people, strangers and exiles. But if we were to look at the church from the inside out, we're going to be given a different perspective. If we can take a deeper glance at the who we are as the church and see the church from God's perspective, looking at her from the inside out, we're going to we're going to find that we are, in fact, God's chosen and cherished people, and that there is so much more to us than what, might be, what may be seen of us at first glance. Now, one of my favorite toys playing with growing up were Transformer action figures. My favorite was Optimus Prime. I thought he was the coolest, and on one moment, Optimus Prime would be this incredible diesel truck, and then you take a deeper look and you begin to mess with him a little bit and he, he starts to transform into this powerful alien robot who leads the Autobots in war against the Decepticons. I, I just loved him. Now, on the package that my Optimus Prime came in, there were some words that also popped up in the theme song that went along with the cartoon, that was, well, that, the Transformer cartoon that was produced and it became their slogan that Transformers more than meets the eye. That at first glance, you might see a transformer and they appear to be just an ordinary earthly object, a diesel truck, a beetle car, an airplane. But upon further review, you discovered that they weren't ordinary earthly objects. They were extraordinary creatures who belonged to another world. Well, there is far more than meets the eye when it comes to the church. When it comes to the church, there is far more than what meets the eye. At first glance, we may look like ordinary people who are living our lives in ways that's quite similar to everyone around us, but upon further review, when we take a deeper look at the church, we begin to see her from God's perspective from the inside out. We find that the gospel has transformed us into extraordinary people who belong to another world, extraordinary people who are living towards the world that is to come. And as we live towards the world that is to come, we are blessing and affecting and impacting the world that is right now. And so we consider who we are as a church as we look at this passage and understand that who we are as a church is related to who Jesus is. That who Jesus is determines, in many ways, who we are as the church. And when it comes to Jesus, there was far more than what meets the eye when people looked at him and when people saw him. If you were to look at Jesus from the outside in, you would see this, this man who was born in an animal stall in Bethlehem, which was quite strange. 
you would know you would come to see a man who was raised in an irreputable town known as Nazareth, a place that many people believe that nothing good could come from it, and yet that's the town Jesus was raised in. And the prophet Isaiah would point out how odd Jesus seemed if you looked at him from the outside in, how he wasn't very attractive, he wasn't very appealing. Listen to what he says. The prophet Isaiah would say that Jesus grew up like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was, who was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. So from the outside looking in, Jesus wasn't very impressive and the same could be said of the church. In fact, Paul would say as much in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Listen to what he says of us. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing to bring to nothing what is viewed as something so that no one may boast in his presence. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. He's saying who we are in the church, we are because of Jesus. And at first glance, like Jesus, that might not seem very impressive. This was certainly true in the experience of the first century church in Asia Minor. For those churches were very insignificant when compared to the status of the Greco-Roman religions and the Greco-Roman spiritualities and the Greco-Roman worldviews that dominated the day. Those churches and what they believed and what they carried out in their way of life seemed very insignificant. It seemed very small. But then you compare those churches and you would see that they appear to be powerless when compared to the might of the Roman Empire. And this feeling, this appearance of being insignificant and powerless, it created an inferiority complex in some of those churches so that some people were being tempted to pull back from their faith saying, I don't want to be insignificant. I don't want to be powerless. They began to see the church from the world's perspective rather than to see the church from God's perspective. And so Peter writes this letter to curb that, to check that. And Peter writes from a man who experienced the bad side of that. There was a time when Peter shrunk back in fear, when Peter too was afraid of being powerless and insignificant. It happened the night Jesus was betrayed and he was arrested and he was taken to trial Soon after that, a young servant girl ran up to him and said, aren't you one of Jesus' disciples to which he denied? He denied the fact that he knew Jesus. He denied ever knowing Jesus. He shrunk back in hiding. So he knows what it's like to succumb to that temptation. And he doesn't want the churches to go in that direction. He understands that there is more than meets the eye when it comes to the church. And so he wants to encourage the church. He wants to equip the church. He wants to elevate the church's understanding of herself, which is what he is doing in this passage. Now, this is one of several passages that we're going to look at over the next few weeks where, where Peter just kind of weaves what Jesus experienced with what the church should expect. That what Jesus experienced in many ways is what the church should expect to experience 
as well. Jesus, for example, was rejected by people. He was rejected by people, but remember, he was chosen and honored by God. So being rejected by people or being unwanted in the world, that doesn't translate to being rejected or to being unwanted by God. And so he's saying, look, that, that Jesus was treated poorly in the world, but he was still chosen and honored by God. And the same can be said of you as the church. A keynote example of this would be seen in the story of Stephen. Stephen was the first Christian, the first follower of Jesus who was killed for declaring that the crucified and risen Jesus was Lord. And as he was declaring that message, a mob surrounded him and they grew angry and they picked up stones and they began to pummel him. And as he is being put to death in the world, we are told that he was given a vision of heaven whereby he saw Jesus. And when he saw Jesus, Jesus stood up off his seat and he gave Stephen a standing ovation. He stood to welcome Stephen into his presence, to welcome Stephen into heaven. So from the outside looking in, it seems as though Stephen had lost, that Stephen was dying a shameful death of stoning. But from the inside looking out, from God's perspective, we see that Stephen received a standing ovation from the king of the universe. And if Jesus is ever to stand for you, rest assured that that is a sign of honor. That is a sign of dignity. That is Jesus saying, Stephen, you are my chosen and honored servant. In that moment, G Stephen was being treated in a way very similar to how Jesus was treated. Stephen was rejected by the world, but affirmed by God. Same would happen to Jesus. He was rejected by the world, but he was chosen and honored by God. See, both with Jesus and with the church, there is far more than what meets the eye. Let's consider what this passage says about Jesus. In verse 4, it says that Jesus is a living stone. Now, this is an important metaphor. It's a messianic metaphor that appears in the Old Testament. One of the most important places is in the book of Daniel. Daniel was a prophet who lived in exile in Babylon. And at the time, Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. And one night, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream that disturbed him, disturbed him greatly. And so Daniel entered his throne room. And God enabled Daniel to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream to him, and this dream concerned a stone. Listen to what it says. Your majesty, as you were watching, suddenly a colossal statue appeared. That statue, tall and dazzling, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was terrifying. The head of the statue was pure gold. Its chest and arms were silver. Its stomach and thighs were bronze. Its legs were iron, and its feet were partly iron and partly fired clay. As you were watching, a stone broke off without a hand touching it, struck the statue on its feet of iron and fired clay, and crushed them. Then the iron, the fired clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were shattered and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away, and not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. The vision in that moment was the vision of God's kingdom coming into the world, just rolling into the world like a stone. And this stone would topple and replace the most powerful of all earthly kingdoms, whether that earthly kingdom was Babylon or 
first century Rome or any earthly kingdom that is at play today, there is the kingdom of God is rolling into the world and it will topple and replace every other earthly kingdom, every other earthly power. It will in the end be the only kingdom, the only reality that will prevail. That's what this stone represents in Daniel chapter seven, the coming kingdom of God. But there's a connection between the kingdom of God and the king in the kingdom of God. And you'll find this in some of the other passages in the Old Testament where the kingdom of God and the king of the kingdom of God are inseparable. They are both referred to as a stone. Isaiah chapter 28, which is a passage that Peter quotes in today's passage. The prophet Isaiah would say this about this kingdom and how this kingdom would be built upon a cornerstone, a certain kind of stone. Isaiah 28, 16. Therefore, the Lord God said, look, I have laid a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. The one who believes will be unshakable. The writer of Psalm 118, another passage that Peter quotes, would say the same thing. He would qualify the stone this way. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That the stone that came into the world bringing in the kingdom of God would be rejected but its rejection would serve as would transform it into the cornerstone, the foundation for God's kingdom. And one day Jesus of Nazareth would enter the stone gates of Zion, that is the city of Jerusalem. And he would stand in the temple, the temple being the focal point of all of God's activity in the world. And he would begin to teach about this kingdom He would declare the realities of the kingdom of God, and he would do so with great authority, so much so that religious leaders stood up and they opposed him. And they asked him the question, by what authority are you saying all these things? And then he would go on to deliver a parable. And he would recount the history of Israel and how Israel had a tendency and a history of rejecting God's chosen and honored servants. And this history of rejecting God's chosen and honored servants, that is, the prophets who would come and speak God's word to them, who would call them towards covenant faithfulness and being and loving God and loving people, the prophets who would speak those realities to Israel, Israel had a tendency to reject. And all of it would come to a climax. That trend would reach its culmination when The first century Jewish people would reject Jesus as the Messiah. They would reject him and he would be put to death, but his rejection would serve his transformation into the cornerstone, the foundation upon which God would build his kingdom, the foundation upon which God would build his church. And it's interesting that in that conversation with the Pharisees, after kind of telling the parable, illustrating this tendency and in anticipation of what he would soon experience on the cross, he too would quote Psalm 118. He too would say to them, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And Peter was there when Jesus would teach these realities and now everything's clicking and he's understanding what Jesus was saying and he's now carrying this teaching into the life of the church. He's encouraging the church with the fact that those prophetic promises have found their fulfillment in the crucified and risen Jesus. And so he refers to Jesus as a living stone. That though he was rejected and crucified on the cross, he was, in fact, chosen and honored by God 
as evident in the resurrection. So the stone is a living stone. The Savior is alive and well. And so we come to Jesus. We, we come to him to find life. We come to him to find salvation. We come to, find, we come to him to find the reason for our existence. Understand that we now, as Christians, come to Jesus. We do not go to Jerusalem. We do not go to a temple. We do not go to a religion. We come to the person of Jesus to find life, to find salvation, to find purpose, to find everything that we need. We come to Jesus. And as we come to him, listen to what happens. As we come to this living stone, Peter writes in verse 5, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to, a whole, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices accepted to God through Jesus. Then in verse 9, he writes, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And he begins to elevate the church's self-understanding, saying Jesus is changing everything about you. Jesus is changing everything about who you were to be in the world. And he just litters the text with all these descriptions of who we are as the church. So let me give you, let me summarize them and give them to you in some, in some statements. Well, one church, I want you to understand that we are a living people. We are a living people. We are living stones because we are in relationship with the living stone. We are a living people, not a dead people. And since we are a living people, we should worship like it. Since we are living people, we should serve like it. Since we are living people, we should live like it. We are a living people, not a dead people. We are living stones. The pulse of Christ is beating in our lives by virtue of the Holy Spirit that God's presence is within us, animating us and energizing us as, an, as a living people. But I worry that some of us in this moment are flatlining. Some of us are flatlining because life, it seems, is being drained out of us. It is being drained out of us by COVID-19. It is being drained out of us by the racial upheaval and the realities of injustice and inequality in the world that is. It is being drained out of us by the fears and the prospects of the upcoming election, we are in danger of flatlining in this moment. And if that is the case, we need the compressions of the gospel to be applied to our hearts once again so that we can be reminded that we are a living people and we are a living people because, according to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, we have been born again to a living hope that Jesus is alive, and if he's alive, we are alive too. If he lives, we live too. And so we want to apply the compressions of the gospel to our reality, to our experiences, reminding ourselves that our hope is not ultimately tied to the finding of a vaccine, reminding ourselves that our hope is not ultimately tied to the results of an election, Reminding ourselves that our hope is not ultimately tied to the manufactured solutions being dreamt up and applied to the problems of injustice and inequality in the world because every manufactured solution will 
on some level fall short of the glory for which we as human beings were created. So our hope does not rest in them. Our hope is a living hope that transcends all that ills the world that is. It is a living hope that we have. Therefore, we are a living people. So we want to live like it. We want to worship like it. We want to serve like it. We are not dead. We are not flatlining. We are alive. We are a living people. But not only are we a living people, we are a spiritual people. Peter describes the church as a spiritual house. This means that God's, that God's presence, his home in the world is concentrated in the church. His house in the world is you and me. It is the church that is at work in the world. Now, in the Old Testament, there's a whole pattern of how God sought to dwell in the midst of his people. He did so with the tabernacle in the book of Exodus. He did so with the construction of the temple in Jerusalem because God sought to dwell in the midst of his people, but because his people rejected him and because his people did not worship him and love him with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength because of his people, his people's refusal to love their neighbors as themselves, eventually God's presence withdrew from the people of Israel. And God's presence withdrew from the temple in Jerusalem. But fortunately, God is a God of grace and he did not give up on his people. He did not give up on his redemptive agenda. And so one day his presence would return to the city, only it would return to the city not by being placed in a building. It would return to the city by coming in the person of Jesus who had stepped onto the scene proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Saying the way of salvation is here and I am he. God's presence occupying the person of Jesus or, being, or coming to Jerusalem in and through the person of Jesus. So we are a spiritual people because we are living in relationship with Jesus the Christ. And we know Jesus to be the true temple. There was a moment where Jesus had a conversation with a woman from Samaria about the subject of worship. And she asked a question, are people going to worship on this mountain or that mountain in this temple or that temple? And Jesus looked at her and says, no, everything's about to change. There's coming a day when people will not worship according to a physical location on the earth. Instead, people will worship me in spirit and in truth. There's coming a moment when the temple will be animated, that the temple will be living and active in the lives of human beings who are filled with my spirit and who are filled with my presence, which is something that would happen at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit would come down and he would create the church. And suddenly our lives became the place where heaven and earth collide, that our lives become, became animated sanctuaries where the worship of God takes place, for we are a spiritual people who inhabit the presence of God in the world. And so as a spiritual people, we now live our lives in such a way, we, we now live our lives with the awareness that God is present. We live our lives now with the awareness that all of life is sacred. All of time is sacred. All, is, all of space is sacred. Wherever we go, God is Whatever we are doing then becomes an opportunity to glorify God and to worship God. So Paul would say, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. That is possible because our lives are where God's 
presence resides. And so we are a spiritual people, worshiping God in spirit and in truth, but we are also a stable people. The big metaphor, the big image of this text is that of a cornerstone, saying that Jesus is the cornerstone of our lives. He is the one upon which our lives are being built. Now, you know a cornerstone is the, most, is the first and the most important stone that is laid in ancient construction, in ancient architecture, that the cornerstone would determine the stability of the foundation that would be laid. It would determine the stability of the building that is being built up. And here we are told that Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the, pano, he is the one upon which our lives are being built up as we're being built up into a holy priesthood. There was a moment when Peter confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus said, you are right, Peter, and it is upon this rock that I will build my church. Now, in that conversation, rock wasn't a reference to Peter. It was a reference to what he was saying about Jesus, the recognition that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and all who recognize him as such come to him and find him to be the cornerstone upon which our lives are being built For Jesus is the one cornerstone, the one foundation that can hold our lives together when everything else in life is being shaken up. There was a moment when Jesus, or towards the end of of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, after he's teaching about the ethics of God's kingdom and he's delivering his word, and it comes to this point where Jesus shares a parable about two houses being built on two different kinds of foundations. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house. Yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. Two houses representing two lives being built up in this world. One on a foundation of sand and one on the foundation of the rock. And when things began to shake, one collapsed while one stood firm. One stood stable. Perhaps you're familiar with the story of Ronda Rousey, who was a big star back in 2015. So much so that Sports Illustrated named her the world's most dominant athlete. She had quite a run up to that point. She was the first U.S. woman to ever win an Olympic medal in judo. And before that, she was the youngest woman to ever qualify for the Olympics at the age of 14. She was consistently one of the top three ranked judo champions in the world before she transitioned into the world of mixed martial arts. And when she did that, she found immediate success. She was dominant in the ring. She became a world champion. At one point, she was 12-0 and as an MMA fighter. Only one fighter up to that point had ever survived the first round with her. She defeated eight of her 12 first opponents in less than a minute. But then in November of 2015, that all changed because she stepped into the ring with another fighter who just beat her, who destroyed her. And after that fight, she was no longer considered the world's most dominant athlete, and her world began to crumble. Her world began to fall apart, so much so that in an interview afterwards, listen to what she said. She said, I was literally sitting there and thinking about killing myself. And at that exact second, I'm like, I'm nothing. What do I do anymore? And no one cares about me anymore. Not without this, not without this title, not without this success, not without this athletic prowess. 
You see, in that moment, she lost more than a fight. She lost her foundation. She had built her life upon success as a mixed martial artist. And when that success was no longer there, her foundation cracked and her life began to crumble. This is the reality for everyone who builds their lives upon a foundation other than Christ. When they live for a purpose other than the one for which they were created, they will find in the end that their foundation will forsake them. They will find at some point in time how their foundation is incapable of bearing the weight of their lives for there is only one foundation in all of reality that can do that and his name is Jesus. And so we come to him and we build our lives upon him and he welcomes us to do so. He encourages us to do so saying, look, I'm gonna bring stability to your life. I'm going to bring definition to your life. I'm going to bring purpose to your life. I'm going to bring passion to your life. You're going to be built up upon me and I assure you, you will not fall because I am a foundation that cannot be shaken and those who believe in me will never be shaken themselves. We are a stable people. But then Peter goes on and he affirms the fact that we are also a communal people. We are communal people. I love the imagery of this spiritual house being built stone by stone, brick by brick. The imagery here reminds us that God, that God's not just after a person. He's after a people. That Jesus did not just die for an individual. He died for a community. He died for a family. He died to build a house comprised of many bricks, many stones who were coming in close contact and in close proximity with each other because coming to faith in Jesus involves coming into fellowship with one another so that we become a house, we become a family, we become bonded to one another, connected to one another because that's how the Christian life is lived. Proximity matters because in order for a house to be built, bricks must touch. Stones must connect. This reminds us that you and I as Christians cannot grow in isolation. This is why every Christian, anyone who comes to Jesus, must recognize that they are also coming to Jesus' people. Therefore, they should join and be an active participate in some expression of Jesus' people in the world, that they should join a church, link up and connect with other Christians because God is at work building up the church and you are to be a part of that. You are a stone, you are a brick in this spiritual house that is being built in the world. And that shows up in local contexts comprised of tangible people, flesh and blood people in various places around the world, including our, including our city. And so we step into fellowship with other Christians for we are a communal people. Then you look at verse 9. And Peter also describes the church as a race and a nation. Just reinforcing the idea that we constitute a new communal people. As a new race, we are a people who are now bound together, not by our blood, but by the blood of Jesus. This means that we're a family. We're a new race, a new people. And as a nation... This means that we are governed by a new constitution. We are governed by a new charter that is the good news of God's word. So as a nation, we 
We recognize that God's word serves as our constitution. This is what unites us together, the blood of Jesus and the Bible, a race and a nation, a communal people who are worshiping and serving God in light of the blood of Jesus, according to the word of Jesus, as a nation and a race. We are a communal people. But then he goes on and says that we are an attentive people. I love this aspect of our identity, that we are being built up into a holy priesthood. Then in verse 9, you have a reference there to a royal priesthood, saying you and I together have been set apart to represent King Jesus in the world. And we do this by being attentive to the needs around us. We are a royal and a holy priesthood. We pay attention to the needs around us, and we seek to meet those needs like priests. Now, what is it that priests used to do in the Old Testament, that priests did before Jesus changed everything and making all of us a part of his priesthood? Well, what did they do? Well, on one hand, they, they brought God to people. And so as a priesthood, as an attentive people, we too bring God to people. We do this through evangelism, by sharing the gospel with people. But then priests also brought people to God by praying for them, by interceding for them. And as a priesthood, we too bring people to God by praying for them and interceding for them. So we pray for one another. We pray for our city. We pray for our government. We pray for the world, bringing people to God and bringing God to people. That's part of what it means to be a priesthood, but there's more. You see, priests were particularly attentive to the hurts of people. And when they came across a hurt, they sought to bring healing to those hurts. And as a, as a priesthood, we too pay attention to the hurts around us and we move towards them in order to bring healing to them. This is why as a church, one of our core values is conveyed to the image of a tourniquet because we believe that a person's deepest wounds are always worship wounds and, and the gospel was given so that the gospel might go to the deep places of our lives to bring healing to our deepest hurts, to bring healing to our most serious and intense wounds. And as a holy priesthood, as attentive people, we bring the gospel to bear on people's hurts and on people's wounds. We seek the healing and the flourishing of those around us. Recently, I was meditating on Psalm 84, that psalm that Pastor Mark read for us at the beginning of our gathering. And and I was struck by the description of verses 5 and 6. Listen to what is said there. It says, Happy are the people whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage as they pass through the valley of Baca, that is the valley of tears. They make it a source of spring water. Even the autumn rain will cover it with blessings. What's being depicted there is that God's presence with his people, passing through the world that is, brings healing wherever it touches brings healing wherever it goes, brings transformation. And you think about the state of the world that we are living in now. You think about the state of our city that is hurting, where lots of tears are being shed. I believe we are more needed now in this city than ever. I believe that God's presence in his people is more needed now than ever as, as the valley of tears that is our city are to be transformed into, into a well of spring water, into autumn rain, bringing blessing to the city. It will come as you and I pay attention to the needs around us. And as we move through this city, as pilgrims move through this city, as people who are filled with the presence of God, 
who, have, who make a transformative impact on those around us. The city needs the church to be the church more than ever. An attentive people, a caring people, a compassionate people, a people who are walking with God, who are loving mercy, who are seeking justice, all in light of the gospel. The church needs to be the church, an attentive, an attentive people. And that will flow into this next identity marker of the church, for he goes on to describe us as a missional people. As an attentive people, we are also a missional people. There's a powerful purpose statement found in verse 9 where he says that we are all of these things, this list of descriptors that are basically Old Testament categories that Peter carries over into the life of the church and saying, this is who you are now, and here's the reason for it. So that we may proclaim the praises of the one who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So that we may bear witness to the one that we worship. That we would bear witness to the one that we are enthralled with. This is what we do instinctively. When you are enthralled with something, you can't be quiet about it. When you are enthralled with something, you cannot help but bear witness to it. This is what Peter is saying to the church. Our worship is our witness as a missional people, we are bearing witness to the one that we are enthralled with. His excellencies, his praises, his character, his conduct in delivering us from darkness and bringing us into his marvelous light. We are a missional people pointing everyone in that direction. And we do that in two fundamental ways. One, we do that verbally. We tell people the story of Jesus. We declare who God is and what God has done we speak that out loud, but not only do we do it verbally, we do it visibly as well. We show the world what God is like by living honorable lives before them. This is what Peter would say in verse 12. Verse 12, he says, Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day that he visits. By living an honorable life before people. We carry out our mission and we proclaim the excellencies of the one who delivered us from darkness and brought us into his marvelous light. Let me ask you this. Is what is found right now on your Facebook feed, on your Instagram feed, on your Twitter feed, is what is being found there as you've been interacting with all that's happening in the world? Can it be said of you that you are conducting yourself in an honorable way? Are you carrying yourself through this season in a way that is, that is holding out hope to people, that is showing compassionate concern for people? Or are you carrying out your time in this season in a way that is not much different from everyone else who is angry and everyone else who is frustrated, everyone else who is hurling insults, everyone else who has no hope? Are you conducting yourself honorably right now during this season? What, would your social, what does your social media channels reveal about your missional effectiveness right now? Don't forget, Christian, no matter what is happening in the world that is, we are a missional people. And it is our mission to proclaim the excellencies of God and bear witness to his gospel through the words we speak and the way that we live before the watching world. But then lastly, lastly, we find that as the church, we are in fact a cherished people. 
We are a people for God's own possession. We, we are owned by God. We belong to God. And with that comes value. With that comes dignity. With that comes the ability to hold our head up and our shoulders back and not shrink back in insecurity and in fear of thinking we are insignificant and powerless. We can stand up. We can stand out. We can stand firm because we belong to God. We are his cherished people. Now, I think it's fascinating to kind of do a little survey and see how much people are willing to pay for possessions that are owned by famous or powerful people. I'll give you a few examples. Napoleon had a toothbrush that apparently sold for $21,000. Hitler had a car that sold for around $150,000. JFK had a set of golf clubs that sold for $772,000. If people are willing to pay that for stuff owned by powerful human beings, how much more are we worth as those who belong to God? How much more dignity, more value has been endowed to us because God owns us, because we are his cherished people. We are people for his own possession. That that is true of us now, even though at one time, It wasn't true because there was a time when we weren't God's cherished people. There was a time when we were not a people at all. There was a time when we had not received mercy. And Peter reminds us of that. He says, there was a time you weren't a people. You hadn't received mercy, but now you are God's people. And now you have received mercy. It's good to think about those moments. It's good to think about the time when we were separated from God and we did not belong to him because we were rejecting him. We did not belong to him because we were rebelling against him. But at some point in time, something changed. At some point in time, we were called by God to step out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We were brought back to find our home with him, to belong to him. I'm reminded of a moment when I was a kid. When I was seven years old, I used to fall asleep in church all the time. I couldn't stay awake in the middle of teaching like this. And that was a problem because my dad was the one teaching like this. And so every time I would fall asleep in church, he would see it. And he told me over and over and over again, Andrew, do not fall asleep in church. Pay attention. But I couldn't help it. I would curl up and I would go to sleep and I would drool all over the pew. That was just my style. And one night we were having a service in the evening and And I did what I normally do. I fell asleep in church. Only this time, I didn't wake up when people started singing after the sermon. I didn't wake up when people started leaving the sanctuary. Instead, I woke up and the sanctuary was pitch black. That people went home. They left the church building. And I was still asleep on the pew. It was one of those situations where my dad thought I was with my mom. My mom thought I was with my dad, and I was with neither one of them. I was where I didn't belong. I was alone in the dark on this pew. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a church building at night, but a church building at night is a very scary place to be. And I couldn't see my hand in front of my face, and so I began to freak out. I began to get scared. I I start to sweat. I start to cry. I don't know what to do. I, I can't get out of that space. I was just a kid. And just when I was losing it, I, I saw a light flip on in the hallway. And the next thing I know, I see the silhouette of a figure standing in the doorway. And then I hear the familiar voice of my father saying, Andrew, come here. Andrew, come here. 
And I looked up and I saw my dad and I, and I got up from my space and I began to move towards him. And I, I began to run, but as I began to run, I was tempted to, to stop running because I remembered why I was there in the first place, because I did what I wasn't supposed to do. I, I fell asleep. He told me not to do so, and that's exactly what I did. So as I was running towards him, I was tempted to slow down because I wasn't sure he was going to receive me. I wasn't sure what he was going to do to me when I got to him. But as I moved closer to my dad, my dad got on his knees and he, and he swept me up in his arms and he put me on his lap and he just held me and he hugged me and he assured me that, I, that he loved me and that I belonged to him, that I was his and nothing that I had done could change that. And so my father swept me up and he took me home. He took me to where I belong because I was his. I was his cherished son. And nothing I had done in that moment could change that reality. Well, Christian, do you understand that you have been brought out of darkness and into the marvelous light of God, that God the Father has called your name and he has made you his child and there's nothing you have done or will do in the future that can change that reality? You are cherished by God right now, whether you feel like it or not. You are cherished by God right now, whether you deserve it or not. He has shown you mercy. He has made you his. You belong to him. You are his cherished, his cherished possession, his cherished people. So let yourself be loved. Let yourself marvel at that reality. And if right now you are looking at yourself, and by extension, you are looking at the church from the outside in, and you're not seeing that, change positions. Shift perspectives. Stop looking at yourself from the outside in and start looking at yourself from the inside out. Stop looking at yourself from the earth's point of view. Start looking at yourself from heaven's point of view. And carry that into how you see the church as well. For we together are God's cherished people. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your son Jesus to rescue us. We thank you for coming to claim us and to make us your own. God, we love you and we praise you and we ask that the recognition of who we are by your grace in Christ, that that recognition would result in us living up to who you've made us to be and living out who you've made us to be. Give us grace to be a blessing to the world around us for as long as we are here. Father, we ask and we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.